Support for this podcast is provided by Head Start. Hire diverse future leaders faster with Head Start. Create a fair and level playing field, hire candidates based on their potential, and manage thousands of applications with ease. Organisations use Head Start's applicant tracking platform with built-in data science to hire more diverse candidates, automate the hiring process, and reduce cost per hire by up to 55%. Find out more and get your free Radical Recruiter t-shirt at headstart.io slash Radical Recruiter. That's headstart.io slash Radical Recruiter. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi everyone, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 261 of the Recruiting Future podcast. Building diverse workforces via inclusive hiring is still a massive issue for many employers. But are organisations doing enough to fix the problem? And what role should technology play in this? My guest this week is Gareth Jones, CEO of Head Start. Gareth and his team are using data science to help employers change the way they think about people and talent in order to enable more inclusive recruiting processes. Hi, Gareth, and welcome to the podcast. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. For, for people who don't know you, could you just introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure thing. Uh, thanks, well, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Gareth Jones. I am currently the CEO of a uh, company, I guess we're probably a bit older than a startup now, but an organization called Head Start. Um, and we are a, um, I guess, a modern matching and screening and management system for recruitment, um, specifically around um, early talent. And our sort of uh, intent is to um, increase diversity um, and I guess, increase inclusive hiring. So that's who we are. So I, I effectively run that business and we're four years old um, and uh, five years this year. And then I guess in the scale up stage at this point. Fantastic. And I, I want to kind of dive in and talk more about diversity and the, and the recruitment process as we, as, we, as we get into the conversation. But before we do though, we've known each other a really long time and I, and I think it would be interesting for people to hear a bit about your story and, and how you got to do what you, what you do now. Okay, sure. Yes. We have known each other for a while, haven't we? Um, <clears throat> we're getting old, Matt. That's the thing. We're getting on a bit. Um, so yeah, so like, I started my corporate life, my life in work over 30 years ago now, which sounds kind of a bit scary. Uh, it means I am, I am a relic, really. But I started in corporate HR, and I did 10 years working in uh, two global uh, organizations. And as much as I enjoyed uh, being in the people area, I found that um, I was disillusioned with it because I felt, you know, most organizations, including the ones I worked with, were sort of saying people are our, most great, our greatest assets, and they didn't mean it, really. They paid lip service to it. So I figured I ought to jump out of that um, to HR and, and get in, get a proper job. Um, and uh, it, when I was in a proper job, I'd probably realized that people don't really matter that much. Um, and I was just, you know, dreaming. And um, so that's what I did. I jumped into recruitment, into a search business, actually, for, a, for about 18 months. And then that got me into technology, which was sort of a mid-late 90s by then. And that technology 
was a startup and that's why this thing got sucked into the dot-com boom. <clears throat> so since that point, and it was recruitment and HR technology, um, since the late 90s, my career has been in and around people and people technology, I guess. So working with technology businesses, um, having been a buyer on the buy side as a client, I was now on the sort of the vendor side, you know, the evil vendor side. But I, I sort of oscillated between working with startups and working in consultancies um, around HR people and technology. Um, I did a couple of years actually in CRM. So I was out of the industry for that for a while. Um, and I ran um, a recruitment business, uh, you know, hands on, ran that for a few years um, and did a, did a bit of time um, in the actual recruitment industry as a, you know, I guess as a recruiter, but running the recruitment business and then being an ops director for the company, the larger recruitment company that, that took us on. And for the last 10 years, um, I, I kind of stepped back into the startup arena, um, moved, worked for myself for a couple of years, uh, and then in consultancy in recruitment again with chemistry. Most people will know if they know me. Um, and uh, from chemistry, built some technology for them, and have carried on in that technology journey, I guess, by joining Head Start um, three years ago. So I've had a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. And that's why I asked you, because I think you are, you are unique in some ways because you've seen, you've kind of seen this industry and you've seen talent attraction and recruitment from lots and lots of different angles and, and, and different directions. It's sort of coming, coming, coming back to, coming back to, to, to the sort of issue of diversity. Now, the, the, the benefits of a, of, of, of companies having a diverse, diverse workforce, uh, are quite well documented and, and quite well discussed. And I would be very surprised if anyone listening to this podcast didn't really understand what they were and what they, what they should be doing. But taking that into account, how much is it still a problem? for employers to attract and retain more diverse workforces? It's interesting, you know, to use that word problem. I think um, I, I think it's a problem they create for themselves, if I'm honest. It, it's not like we have a shortage of diverse talent. Um, and it's not like we have a shortage of talent anyway. You and I have debated that many, many times over the years. Um, I think it's a case of companies don't, set out you know they have they have habits and habits take a long time to break and you know we, we still have organizations largely run by white stale pale and male you know uh, people who look like me actually um and their recruiting practices over the last 30 years haven't really changed in that respect it's become an agenda item and it's become a very high profile agenda item in recent years but we were talking about diverse hiring when I got into the workforce only we talked about it in the you know it, we called it equal opportunities back then um, but we we haven't made the landscape any more equal or created any more opportunities for for the uh, diverse groups so it's not so much a problem it's it's still a challenge for them because they you know let's face it they can put a business together grow a business run a business and make in theory, a healthy return for the shareholders, and yet still report terrible diversity statistics internally. You know, that happens. You know, if you look at the global diversity statistics, the number of women in leadership roles, the number of ethnic minorities in leadership roles, the number of ethnic minorities or, or other other groups who fail to, you know, get promoted and you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at those globally, we're still terrible at it. Um, and that 
sits aside all of the research that you've pointed out that shows that if you were to do it, if we were to be more inclusive and have a more diverse workforce, we would see better profits. We would see better, you know, better competition. We would, et cetera, et cetera. So I struggle with this because on the, on the one hand, you've got all of this evidence that, and it's written by the great and the good. It's from studies, you know, very good studies, Harvard, you know, everybody in Seattle, they're all saying this. They're all publishing these papers and have done for years. Deloitte, Accenture, everybody. And yet the reality is the organizations are still ignoring it. And yet they're kind of saying, oh, we're struggling with it. We can't find diverse talent. I just think it's nonsense. It's because they don't want to. They don't really care. Fundam- fundamentally, they don't care enough. The leadership doesn't care enough. It may sound a bit controversial. If it did, it would change it. And an example I used recently in a conference was if the finance uh, director or you know, the, the head of CRM in a global business came along and said, hey, guys, um, there's a, this new supply chain uh, structure uh, that's been researched by Harvard and INSEAD and everybody else. And there are, they've got plenty of case studies to show this new supply chain infrastructure works, suits our business. And if we did this, we would be 20% more efficient and we would drive to 50% more revenue. You know, we should be doing this. The, the CEO and the FD would be all over it like a rash. Like they'd be stupid not to do it. And yet you've got the similar kind of compelling evidence for inclusive hiring and we ignore it. And I can only assume that that's ignorance or incompetence. That, you know, at the end of the day, why wouldn't you do it? Um, and the, the really interesting thing is that we make a big deal about it. Yes, our workforce, we want to make diversity a big thing this year. We want to you know, leverage talent. We don't think we're getting enough. We want to do this. There's a big thing on the CEOs. They see it report day after day. CEOs concerned about the talent mix in their organization. CEOs concerned about the quality of talent in their separate functions, et cetera. We'll do something about it. So I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a, just a challenge of attitude, if I'm being honest. It's a very big issue. And I think we, we could discuss lots of different aspects of that. But if we were to sort of, if we zero in on the, on the recruitment process side of things, how do current recruitment processes contribute to that challenge? That's interesting because I think, you know, there's definitely a role for technology to play, obviously. And I think there are two dimensions that are, that are worth talking about. One, the current recruitment process is, is generally poor and broken, I think. Um, because it hasn't, again, it hasn't changed much at all. We've thrown a lot of technology at it over the years. So, you know, post dot com boom, you, know, you were, you, you worked in the, you know, employer branding and advertising industry. Um, the good old days of print advertising, um, and how that shifted. Um, but ultimately all we did was put the job online, right? We put a job ad and took it out of a print magazine and stuck it online and encouraged a million people to apply for a job who'd never applied for a job before. So. We've pushed technology at it, but we haven't re-engineered the process. We haven't really improved the process or the quality of the process. So we find ourselves with people who are trying to recruit. And by no, and I'm not talking about people who, who uh, there are some clearly, but and most of the people who are recruiting aren't trying to filter out diverse candidates. They're not, they're not saying I'm going to you know, discriminate against people. But it's, it's in their, their consciousness. Right, it's in their subconsciousness. It's happening. Their unconscious biases exist. 
And that's just with the recruiter. When they, at each step, it looks at a CV, it looks at an individual. Then you've got the hiring managers who have, you know, want to hire in their own image and all of those things. And I think that that process is broken and needs a complete rethink. Um, and, you know, the obvious thing when it comes to technology, um, and you all have seen this and heard this and probably have vendors uh, talking to you about it. But the obvious thing is to say, I know, let's use technology to do to make it to make it better. And the default for that is let's anonymize CVs, let's remove photographs, let's do all of these things that we can <clears throat> that remove. Let's let's strip the identity away from this uh, candidate who might be in a in a, a minority group or disadvantaged in some way. You know what? To me. Albeit I work in a technology business and I work in a technology business that, that you know, um, serves this market. But that feels so dehumanizing to me. Um, and I really feel strongly that um, that might be the direction of travel of the, the product teams in a lot of the recruitment processes. But I don't think it's the answer. Um, and it might be that we're forced to put that kind of stuff into our product and we don't at the moment. And I think the reason is, for me, if I start and we start stripping names and pictures and any sort of identifiable material out of um, out of CVs and applications, which I can see, I can understand it. I can understand that we want to try and level the playing field. Um, all that's doing is kicking the can down the road, right? We're not changing behavior. We're not changing issues and attitudes, right? At some point, that candidate's going to come into the business or in the new world, jump on a video call. Um, and meet somebody and those prejudices are going to come back. And so what, what we really need to do is change behavior and attitudes. We need, to, we need recruiters and hiring managers. We need to highlight diversity in the recruitment process. We need to re-engineer the process so that it, it makes it completely transparent so that I actually have to sit there and consider I have a shortlist here that doesn't have enough <clears throat> diverse candidates on it. Or I have a shortlist here that's full of diversity. Um, I need to talk my hiring manager through that. We both need to face our prejudice and our subconscious biases. That's, I think, the approach that we should be taking. So it's not necessarily straight into technology and technology is going to solve the problem. I think yeah, this is a human thing and the process is broken. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think there's a lot of talk about unconscious bias, but but actually, and you know, a, a lot of it, you, you're kind of almost hinting at it in some of the things that you said. There's a lot of conscious bias as well, but that can manifest itself in something as simple as, well, because this person is has has this amount of experience, they're 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 you know they're going to be too old for this job, or because this person has worked in this industry, they couldn't possibly work in our industry, or they couldn't possibly have skills that that map across because we've never recruited anyone in the past who, who who has done that and we've not done that because we're consciously biased against doing it so i completely agree with you there obviously you're also saying that the technology is not a silver bullet that that, that solves this and people are looking at potentially some sort of quite uh, crude ways of, of using technology as a solution are there there smart ways of, of using technology to to help with this problem yeah i think there are so i think it comes down to data doesn't it to try and so you know some of the, the stuff that we're looking at we're trying to look at so what you know what data is there in this data society that, that we can use that's relevant how can we highlight um something that's not quite so obvious 
so you know clearly um it's you know with some um elements of inclusive hiring it's quite obvious um you know origin of candidates and stuff like that but some of the things that we're looking at for example are um socially disadvantaged individuals who may or may not present themselves in a way that you find familiar or or not or that might um <clears throat> you know um engage your unconscious or indeed conscious biases so people who for example so you you might get two people who present to an employer as an early talent you know entry level employees you've come from you know both they both come from oxford let's just say right if you're still an employer who's convinced that red brick universities produce the best talent which they don't but they rant over on that but let's just say you've got two two people who present themselves for your organization and they've both got a first class honors in economics or or art uh, just to be included um and you know what is the difference between those two people um it might be that one of them has come from a very typical middle class background in the uk they maybe have been you know grown up in a family that was been together and is still together they went to private school possibly had the benefit of private education which as we know gives you certain entry level credits to Russell Group you know, universities um and therefore I'm not going to say that uh, take anything away from their intellectual capability or horsepower or, or the amount of work they've done to get to that point but there might be somebody standing right next to them who also has a first class honors in economics or arts or something from Oxford who whose parents split up when they were 8 um they became a parent carer at 14 they had to work two jobs as well as go to school and they had to put themselves through university um and they grew up in that environment they grew up in was you know was a socially disadvantaged environment that person has characteristics and traits that are invisible and we can use data where it exists to surface that social disadvantage because in that context that individual has outperformed their social norm their social group so that is a way of us using technology and data to be able to highlight the differences in individuals and character and therefore maybe um give that person an opportunity that they wouldn't have had previously so it's that kind of thing um that we're that we're looking at to see is there a way of highlighting some of the more invisible and some of the, perhaps some of the more difficult um elements that people have faced as they're trying to get themselves you know lift themselves out of a, uh, their current situation you talked about things being invisible and then at the same time you talk about data what what do you mean by by data in this in the, in this context what, what what is it that you're looking at that that helps that kind of helps tell that story so it's it's a bunch of stuff so there's there's a bunch of data that comes from individuals so you know um where where were they brought up um were they brought up in a single parent family or not were their parents together when they were 21 as all of these are um uh, which goes back to some of the studies done in the sort of the late noughties um around data science and big data and um you know predicting your personality from facebook and predicting a whole a bunch of other things based on you know i guess some some indicators but we would look at whether they were the first person to go to university in their family for example um out of their you know um previous their parents or grandparents um where they actually lived at different stages in their lives 
um, and whether their parents are together, etc. That sort of data. And then we would we bring in other data, more publicly available data. So things like postcode data, um, uh, you know, social deprivation data by postcode, free school meals by postcode, etc. So that we can try and identify um, whether individuals have, I guess, you know, lived in an area or, or had those unfortunate circumstances or fought through those circumstances um, in order to get where they are. So it's a blend of, you know, individual data and um, publicly available data that we can kind of, you know, put our data science hats on and see if we can find any relationships or correlations between the two. What kind of companies are embracing this kind of approach and, and what are they seeing in, in terms of results? It tends to, well, you know, I mean, obviously the clients that we work with are large enterprise. So, uh, and actually, in fact, the, the, the larger consultancies are showing them, I guess, the most interest in it. Um, they, they're, they're, they're very interested in social deprivation and whether, you know, as part of their inclusive hiring, they can, you know, be more inclusive in those things to recognize that. Because I guess, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But looking for certain behaviors, determination, you know, getting cutting through, and you can you can sort of see some of those behaviours in in people that have come up in difficult circumstances. So I think for for sure, um, businesses, the larger organisations and the consultancies, particularly, are definitely trying to make themselves um, or, or recognise the diversity problem because they they have to deliver excellence to clients, right? They're the guys that are telling the clients, the the enterprise organisations, how they should be building people excellence and talented workforces. So I think those are the guys that are the most interested in this. And they seem to be more have more empathy towards understanding whether people have had uh, you know, challenging upbringings um, as, as their future leaders. And I think that's part of it. I think you know, the consultancies think a little bit more strategically. So they do see their entry-level hiring as their future leaders. Right. Whereas I'm not sure a lot of other companies do. They see it as they're just their entry level hiring, um, the graduates, uh, the cheaper labor sometimes, let's be honest. Um, so I think, you know, they're, they're seeing it, um, as a strategic imperative for them and they're genuinely interested. Um, and in terms of benefits, I think I've worked on a number of projects in, in Head Start, um, and in, in others historically. That have you know broken limited beliefs um, and forced people to look through different lenses. So you know, very simply, um, where they thought they would be fishing for talent and looking for talent in a you know in a place where they thought the best resided. So ergo, in the world of early talent, um, in the top universities, top universities and top grades equals the best employees and therefore the best results for us as a business. And that's been proven to be completely wrong. So now these organizations are discovering that actually the highest performing people in their organizations can come from any background, actually, not even necessarily a graduate. If we're talking early talent, which is obviously the space that I'm in right now. Um, and I've seen that uh, both at Head Start and I've seen it at the time, particularly when I was working at Chemistry too, that it surfaces 
people who are very capable and very credible and it blows away their perception of where they should be looking for that talent. As a final question, we're, we're recording this interview um, mid-April 2020. We're in the middle of a, uh, the global pandemic crisis and it's becoming clear that talent acquisition is, is going to change coming, coming, com- coming out of this. Now, how it's going to change is, is less clear, but lots of employers are thinking about what does the future look like and, and what does their future strategy look like? Do you think that what's going on at the moment is is a catalyst for changing the way that recruitment processes processes work. What what, what do you think? Uh, I don't think actually it will change that much in the grand scheme of things. Um, sure, if the recession, you know, if, if this rolls out as we, I guess we think it will, um, although we're not sure how it's going to pan out. But let's say it, it looks like a recession only worse, then we will see recruitment will go down significantly. The recruitment industry will probably, you know, take a panning and recruitment activity will probably stop or go down to very small levels. And yes, some organizations will try and re-engineer, take that opportunity for change. So yes, well, while we're shrinking the recruitment, let's let's make it more efficient so we don't have to hire more recruiters next time. Let's put some technology in. So it's a, it's a good time to make some changes. There's no doubt about that. And we will see that happen. Fundamentally, would it change our approach to recruiting? No, I don't think it will. Um, because when we emerge the other side, companies will still largely be the same kind of companies. Recruitment is a supply chain. It will only change if the demand in the organization, the way the organization runs itself, the way its way of working changes also. Um, just like in the 80s and 90s, we changed manufacturing, you know, typical old factory. We, we had stores on site, lots of inventory kept, and, and yet we, we shifted manufacturing to be far more efficient. We got rid of stores. We got rid of our inventory. We stopped paying for inventory, and the supply chain to a factory changed massively, and people were suppliers were delivering parts every hour to that particular line, and the company only paid for them um, when they took them off the shelf and put them on the car, for example. That made it was a fundamental shift in the way the, the, you know, the supply chain of goods into a factory because we fundamentally change the way we work. And that's going to be the same with people and people's supply and business. Um, the problem to be solved is to get the right person in the right job at the right time every time as a CEO of a business, no matter how big it is. And actually, to do that, I need to understand my internal talent so much better. We become obsessed with hiring, obsessed with finding the best talent and fighting this war for talent that actually we've forgotten about the talent that we have internally. So we need to get way more sophisticated and understand the people that we have in business and then change the way we allow them to work, embrace technology, allow people to work more flexibly, treat them like adults, fundamentally allow them to challenge the processes inside a business before that will change. So I don't think we're going to see a massive fundamental shift in the way we recruit and a different attitude from recruiters and a different attitude from the leaders at all. I think if we recover and as and when we recover from the recession, we will see a return to the way we recruited before. Um, I don't see at the moment any incentive to do to do any change. And of course, unless we fundamentally change the way we work, um, there, there won't be a mandate to do anything different, except maybe try and make it more efficient. So no, I don't think there's going to be sweeping changes across the industry and sweeping improvements um, in the way we work as a result of it, no. Gareth, thank you very much for joining me. No, you're welcome, Matt. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. 
my thanks to Gareth Jones. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow us on Instagram. You can find the show there by searching for Recruiting Future. You can also listen and subscribe to the show on Spotify. You can find all the past episodes at www.rfpodcast.com. On that site, you can subscribe to the mailing list and find out more about working with me. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.